Welcome to Bloom, a conversations podcast featuring guests who have lived meaningful, interesting and flourishing lives. I'm lucky to be joined today by Commissioner Shane Fitzsimmons, who currently leads Resilience New South Wales as its inaugural commissioner, following a long and distinguished career with the New South Wales Rural Fire Service. Shane came to national prominence in Australia through his role as commissioner of the New South Wales Rural Fire Service during the 2019-2020 bushfires, where he led New South Wales's response to the fires, which raged across South Australia, Queensland, Victoria, and most severely in New South Wales and the ACT. These fires tragically caused the loss of 33 lives, destroyed over 3,000 homes and damaged thousands more, burned over 30 million hectares of land, and caused over a billion animals to perish. He joins me today to talk about his life story and career, leadership, the 2019-2020 bushfire season, and all things emergency management and natural disaster resilience in Australia. And before jumping into the interview, I'd first like to acknowledge the generous guidance and feedback that I had in developing questions relating to natural disaster recovery and resilience from Shona Witten. Shona leads the recovery programming at Australian Red Cross in her role as National Coordinator for Recovery and Psychosocial Support. Thank you, Show. So thank you so much for joining me today, Commissioner. It's a great pleasure to be speaking with you. Oh, Nicholas, it's it's great to be joining you and, and having this chat on something that I think is so important when it comes to community and disasters and particularly what we've been experiencing uh, here in New South Wales, but more broadly across the nation in the last 18 months to two years. Absolutely. And for our listeners who may not be so familiar with your story, can you talk a bit about your early life in Sydney's northern beaches and how you found your way to volunteer firefighting from what you described in Australian story recently as troubled or rebellious teenage years? Yeah, thanks, Nicholas. Look, I, I did grow up on the on the northern beaches uh, area of Sydney. Um, we, we grew up predominantly in areas like Duffy's Forest, Terry Hills, uh, Mona Vale. Um, and um, a lot of people don't know where Duffy's Forest is, but but one of its uh, predominant features uh, used to be the home of Skippy Park or Waratah Park, where, he, where they used to film the old series uh, Skippy the Bushfire Kangaroo. And I remember as a teenager there, I even had some part-time work uh, in, in Skippy Park, uh, helping mm. with the animals and, and doing horse rides and those sorts of things. So uh, a very bushland suburb um, mm. that's changed dramatically over the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we grew up as a family in in quite modest housing uh, and the houses uh, that I recall growing up in and when I visit those areas today, uh, the horse stables are probably three or four times uh, the size of the houses that, that we grew up in. So it's certainly changed mm. a lot over the years, uh, but nonetheless, there's still that inherent uh, bushfire risk. And, and yeah, as a young person, um, my mum and dad separated when I was pretty young uh, and I I lived most of my teenage years, uh, my, most of my uh, youth and teenage years, uh, living between my mum and my dad's place. And uh, dad and I moved moved in with my grandma uh, for a while there as well. And so we, I lived between homes. And I think over those years, I, I became somewhat rebellious. I, I probably wasn't the best student at school that I've been pretty public about. Um, as a matter of fact, I got in trouble a fair bit at school. Uh, I still, to this day, don't know how I wasn't actually expelled. I, I remember getting lots of detentions and I was a regular in the deputy principal's office getting the cane on, on so many occasions. And I think on one one time there, uh, I got to the point where I wasn't allowed to um, join in uh, with the rest of the students. And I had my own desk set up in the main administration <laughs> block outside the principal's office and, and my work was monitored there. And then I had to have separate recess time and separate lunch time and those sorts of things. So school wasn't, wasn't I wasn't the best student, but I did pass. I I, 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 I enjoyed uh, learning, uh, but I also enjoyed the social aspect. Uh, I continued right through to, to year 12. But it was in those, it was in those teenage years uh, that I actually joined the local Duffy's Forest Volunteer Bushfire Brigade. Mm. Uh, my dad was a volunteer as, from as early as I can remember. I remember as a, probably around about a 10-year-old in the 1979 fires, which were significant fires in the northern suburbs of Sydney there, the northern beaches of Sydney. And I can just remember as a little kid being really worried about my dad and the fires and being out there. And I've got these vivid memories of him coming home. Uh, back then it was white overalls and they were just covered in black ash and soot. And mm. so was him and his face and everything. And I just I just remember 
uh, that sense of duty, that sense of that sense of getting out and making a difference in the community. So when I was 15, mm. uh, I was I was actually able to join uh, as a as a member uh, the local volunteer bushfire brigade, and I just found a real sense of of belonging, a, a real sense of camaraderie, um, uh, a sense of purpose, uh, and 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 having a lot of fun, uh, but at the same time, um, doing things um, and participating in activities, making decisions that made a real difference uh, in the local community. Yes, we were there to respond to fires and emergencies and all sorts of other things, but we were also there to do community education, community engagement. We also did lots of important activity like like fire trail maintenance and mm. and hazard reduction burns and trying to keep the fuel levels down to, to manageable levels. So there was this real sense of community, and I just thrived in the area of training, uh, being trained myself, but mm. then also becoming a general trainer and a specialist trainer in all different, in different areas. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I just thoroughly enjoyed that in my early years. And then I, when I left school, uh, I, I came from a family that was, that wasn't too focused on university and it was all about, you got to get a trade. So I ended up uh, getting a trade and I was a mechanic by trade, yeah. um, automotive technician, I think it was technically called, but the, um, I wasn't a very good mechanic and the bosses knew that. So they put me on the, on the front desk and I, I did a lot of my time uh, with customer service and customer interface. Uh, so I spent about 10 years in the motor industry before I was able to secure full-time employment and effectively turn a real passion, a real hobby, a real volunteer vocation uh, into a career as well. And I secured employment in mm. September 94 with the then Department of Bushfires, uh, yeah. Department of Bushfire Services, following the awful uh, January 94 fires, which were a pretty big watershed moment for the New South Wales uh, community. Yeah, extraordinary stuff. And your own personal story and how you got involved in volunteer firefighting through the local brigade and your clear commitment to civic life and community service reminds me so much of the ABC TV series, which has been recently published, called Fires, which is a fictional retelling in story form of the 2019-2020 bushfire season. It's incredibly emotive and powerful. But looking back on your 35-year career at the New South Wales Rural Fire Service, with 12 years spent leading the organisation as commissioner, what stands out for you most when you look back on your experiences over several decades? And what have been some of the most significant changes to both Australia's patterns of extreme weather and also how we respond to emergencies as agencies and as society? Look, when I when I reflect back now on 35 years uh, as a volunteer and as a salaried officer, there's there's a couple of things that really come to mind. The progress that's been made is enormous. I remember when I first joined, uh, our fire trucks um, uh, were often ex-army converted uh, trucks, four-wheel drive trucks, or any other sort of truck we could get our hand on. Mm. Uh, they were typically petrol-powered uh, carburetors, so they'd often have fuel vapor lock, and they break down on the on the fire grounds in extreme heat. Um, you wouldn't be worried about any sort of roadworthy inspection. Um, uh, uh, these are like back then. Yeah, and yeah. literally uh, with some colleagues, uh, we used to dedicate ourselves to getting these trucks to actually drive. You know, if yeah. the thing started when you got to the fire shed, it was a good day. If mm -hmm. it went forward and engaged gear, even better day. If you put your foot on the brakes and it stopped, fantastic. And we used to get around literally sitting on the back of the tray. We used to make up bench seats around the water tank and all those sorts of things. So Wouldn't when I think the, about uh, those <laughs> just, just in my 35 years, let alone all those people that were there, you know, in, in the decades beforehand, mm. from really humble rudimentary beginnings, we had people, men and women, that were dedicated to serving and protecting their community and doing the very best they could with what was available. And as we've seen over the decades, we've seen... Uh, one thing that stayed constant, and that is the core value of people coming together to help one another, mm. help themselves and help their community. And that spirit of volunteerism, that mateship, that camaraderie, men and women pulling together is the cornerstone, the foundational element of all that's good in community and particularly uh, in fire and emergency services. Uh, and what the people have also shown us is over those decades that when we see governments and communities invest uh, in recognising uh, that professionalism, professionalism is not about whether you get a pay packet for what you do. Yep. Professionalism is about what you do and how you do it. So when you invest properly uh, in people and you equip them 
equip them with the right equipment. You invest in their infrastructure like vehicles and fleet and, and buildings and, and, and training programs, and you support them with technology uh, and systems and, and programs that focus on safety and well-being, coordination, operational activity. We've seen over the decades um, billions of dollars worth of investment in modernising and professionalising uh, the capacity and the wherewithal uh, of that remarkable organisation and being able to partner with their salaried counterparts, not just here in New South Wales, but right around the country. Indeed, we've had volunteers deployed uh, overseas to help with firefighting operations because of their international regard and reputation for being the best at what they do. Yeah. But it's that investment mm. and that modernisation that's, that, that's, that's really transformed the organisation being at the leading edge of technology uh, embracement and utilisation has been really important. But the thing that I've observed the most, probably in the last two decades, is our openness and our willingness to invest in research. Invest in research, asking questions that we're seeking answers to or that we think we know the answer to, but having the, having the, having the courage to ask questions about the things we don't actually know the answers to and seek, seek the expertise uh, of our of our institutions to go about and understand uh, what's happening with climate, what's happening with with social behaviours and social patterns, what's happening with demographics and land use, and what that interplay means when it comes to community vulnerability and susceptibility to disaster and events, um, and then what that means in terms of preparation, anticipation, adaptation, and investment uh, in strategies, programs, infrastructure. Uh, all manner of things. So, so over the decades, uh, I think that's really come through uh, as one of the biggest transformative areas. It's that technology, investment, infrastructure, systems and programs, but underpinned uh, by research, mm. uh, research um, that, that, that provides us uh, with the evidence base to prosecute arguments, to run business cases, to see governments at all levels investing um, uh, with that evidence-based platform, uh, with the independent research um, to back us in uh, to substantiate what's needed today so we can ready ourselves for what's coming tomorrow. And I've, I've, I've been really proud to be part of that and work with governments at all levels mm -hmm. and governments of all persuasions. It's been, it's been quite, quite encouraging uh, and quite humbling to see uh, the investments that have, that have transformed uh, yeah. the way I think about where I was 35 years ago, yeah. uh, where I had to I had to buy my own clothing. It certainly wasn't fire treated. We used to go to a local army disposal store to get our boots and our and our overalls and all those sorts of things. Whereas today, we've got our teams in state of the art, researched, tested, and evaluated uh, second to none technologies and platforms anywhere in the world. So they're the sorts of things that I'm particularly proud of that I mm. that I reflect on over the years. But the one constant is those remarkable men and women, both volunteer and salaried alike, that commit themselves to persevering, to arguing, wanting change, seeking change, all in the interests of serving and protecting their local community. That's pretty special. Yeah, that's a really fascinating sweep of insights. Thank you. And I completely agree with you that the beating heart of the whole operation is the people, volunteers and staff who are doing the work to make it all happen. There's often a lot of cynical academic and media reporting about the declining participation in civic life across the world. But certainly within emergency management and disaster response, you've got so many men and women lining up to help the community. And we really saw that in the 2019-20 bushfire season. So can you take our listeners back to the sheer scale of the 2019-20 bushfire season and what it was like at the time being at the centre of this unfolding, unprecedented national emergency? And, and Nicholas, I, I used the word unprecedented uh, very early on in the season, um, and there was a few people out there, uh, commentators, uh, that, that kept trying to dismiss this word unprecedented as though I was trying to suggest that it was some sort of alarm or something. It wasn't. Mm. Um, I'm pretty simple. Uh, when we haven't experienced something, witnessed something, um, um, dealt with something um, like we were dealing with at that time ever before in our history, then it's without precedent. So if unprecedented is not the word, what is it? But yep. what I would say to substantiate the unprecedented nature of the season, it was unprecedented on, on, on many levels. Um, I won't use the phrase black summer bushfires because I think it does a disservice to so many people in New South Wales and indeed up in Queensland who started earlier on uh, in the season. But in New South Wales, we were averaging 
a thousand fires a month, over a thousand fires a month during winter, uh, June, July, and August. And then as we moved into spring, uh, the numbers increased, the activity broadened, the fire, the fire area consumed was getting bigger and bigger. And then, of course, as we headed into summer, uh, we saw uh, we saw you know some pretty horrific scenes. But it was the building effect and the longevity of the season that was without precedent. As a matter of fact, um, uh, the season went uh, for for over 160 days of some of the highest tempo, um, most ferocious, intense fire activity, 160 consecutive days, 200 consecutive days of declared bushfire emergencies in New South Wales. Mm. Now, if you look back in our history, over all the decades past, you will find some of the most intense fire seasons, the most damaging, destructive fire seasons. You'll be lucky if that intensity period lasts more than two weeks. Two mm. weeks, maybe three weeks at the absolute most. Often, some of the most destructive events occur over 24 hours or three days. But let's just say it's two or three weeks. We're talking six months uh, of extraordinary, drawn-out, uninterrupted, above-average temperatures, below-average rainfall, an absence of moisture month after month after month. The 2019-20 fire season, as we moved into the season, 100% of the state was drought-affected, drought-declared. It went down in the record books as being the hottest year on record. Um, we saw fire burning across landscapes uh, that traditionally don't burn or that typically don't burn, such as rainforest, uh, rainforest regions uh, where there's usually a higher level of moisture uh, in, in, the, in the surface fuels or the ground fuels uh, where fires would often, I'll say self-extinguish, but it's quite and right down overnight, yep. allowing manual work to get in and put them out. Well, they weren't. Fires were burning through these rainforest areas. The, the moisture deficit in the landscape was profound and fires were starting very easily and they were spreading extremely quickly. Uh, and, and so you had the longevity of the season. You also saw fire behaviour and fire spread. The best available computer modelling, the best available fire behaviour specialists doing manual predictions, uh, normally uh, as 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 a as a simple um, and uh, descriptor, when they when they predict a fire based on where it is, time of day, weather variables, terrain, vegetation, all those sorts of inputs that go in, they can model an output of the fire spread, and they will start with best case scenario, i.e., uh, the least likely spread. Then they'll usually go worst case scenario. The most, the most it could possibly spread under the conditions. And then often the fire will go through judgment and through simulation somewhere in between. What we found during the 2019-20 fire season are that so often fires were actually exceeding the worst case scenario. But some of our worst fire behaviour, because of the moisture deficit, because of the above normal temperatures, the below normal rainfalls, um, we were seeing some of the worst fire behaviour at 2, 3, and 4 a.m. in the morning when most fires traditionally settle down mm. uh, and you would expect that sort of fire behaviour at 2, 3, and 4 in the afternoon. So yeah. the fire season itself, the fire behaviour, the weather, uh, the underlying landscape conditions because of the moisture deficit and the drought. But then on top of that, you look at the damage and the destruction. Uh, mm. Five and a half million hectares uh, across the Great Dividing Range from the Queensland border um, um, and the Northern Tablelands area, all the way down uh, to the Southern border region, uh, down into Victoria and the Southeast and the high country of New South Wales. Five and a half million hectares uh, consumed. Uh, there was just under two and a half thousand homes destroyed. Having said that, firefighters and community did a remarkable job, as awful as it is, and I don't Save mean to be or disrespectful, but they saved over 15,000 homes in that yeah. same burnt-out scar area. And, of course, um, you, you, you look at the wildlife, you look at the ecosystems, uh, the impact uh, there, uh, you look at the livelihoods, you look at the, you look at the infrastructure, you look at the businesses, you look at the communities uh, that were dislocated and disaffected and broken. Uh, it, was, it was extraordinary. But on top of that, uh, we also lost 26 lives out of 33 lives that were lost nationally uh, with fires in other states, 26 lives in New South Wales, the single biggest toll of life lost in bushfires ever in our state's history. Mm -hmm. And of those 26 lives that were lost, seven of them were our own firefighters, four volunteers. There's dates and times and moments that will be etched in our memories forever. 
Uh, on the 19th of December, we lost Jeff and Andrew uh, in southwest Sydney when a tree crashed through the front windscreen of their truck while they were driving down the road. We lost young Sam on the 30th of December down near the Victorian border uh, when a, a fire-generated thunderstorm, uh, a pyroconvective column, uh, um, uh, had a downdraft or collapsed as it's often referred to, had this downdraft that went across the fire ground, benign conditions on the fire ground suddenly became what they described as cyclonic type winds that were full of fire and heat uh, that enveloped fire crews on the ground and were so strong and so volatile that they flipped over the truck that Sam was working on mm. um, and he was crushed underneath the weight of a 12-ton truck. Um, so, so just extraordinary events, extraordinary behaviour and tragedy with losing Sam. We also lost Cole on the 31st of December, a volunteer working down in the Southern Ranges on his way back to the fire station, which was the safe point to protect people. Mm. Cole never made it back. They found his uh, burnt out remains in the cabin of his truck that had overturned on a bend, uh, which they assume uh, was enveloped in fire and smoke and he lost, he lost uh, visibility. And then, of course, as we got through December, uh, hoping that it wouldn't get any worse, then on the 23rd of January, one of our large water bombing aeroplanes uh, uh, crashed uh, down in the southern um, uh, ranges, down in the high country near Cooma, killing all three people on board, uh, our contract partners, uh, some of the best aviators in the world, firefighting, aerial firefighting uh, operators, uh, Ian, Paul and Rick, all died when their plane crashed into the ground while they were down there helping with firefighting operations. So it had an enormous toll, and indeed it was unprecedented on so many dimensions. It was truly awful, uh, to yeah. be truthful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for also remembering and memorialising each of those individuals who gave their lives for others. It's so important to remember the names and stories as, as time goes on. Could you talk a bit about what it's like being a leader, having command responsibility over a natural disaster of such an immense scale and proportion? where your nation is suffering so much and is seemingly so helpless in the face of the natural disaster. But in the face of that seemingly overwhelming disaster and, and maybe helplessness, I've never seen anything like it in terms of the community outpouring of support and the desire to help that we had. And so I, wonder, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the personal and community stories that stand out for you most from that time, stories of resilience and hope and defiance even. I, I reflect on that season so often, Nicholas. There's, there's, there would be rarely a day where I don't think about what unfolded during that fire season. And whilst I, whilst I obviously default uh, to to reflections of sadness and sorrow, and indeed grief, uh, to be honest, um, uh, the the losses were immense. The losses were extraordinary. But the bittersweetness that I reflect on that fire season also reminds me that in our darkest of times, in our darkest of moments, um, we saw the remarkable Australian spirit. We saw this remarkable human spirit, this humanity that rose above everything else. And what I mean by that is we had thousands and thousands and thousands, in their tens of thousands, people that dedicated themselves to the firefighting effort, the fire and emergency response effort. You had men and women on the front line um, with fire hoses and fire trucks and all those sorts of things. You had people in the air. You had people behind the scenes. You had the emergency management teams all pulling together. So we had literally, um, we were averaging two and a half to 5,000 people per shift, day and night, every day uh, for months uh, that were dedicated to making a difference. The Premier issued a citation to recognise those that were involved in the firefighting effort. The last time I looked at how many we distributed to those that were part of that effort, it's over 65,000 people. So you're okay. talking an extraordinary army of men and women that dedicated themselves, um, had this united resolve to make a difference as much as they possibly could, save and protect as many as much as they could. But at the same time, you mentioned those people that were looking on, and there were people looking on with fear and anxiety mm. uh, and just profound sorrow and sadness and, and this, want to, this want to help and assist. And boy, did we see it. Um, the thing that will sit with me forever was this remarkable and sincere outpouring of love, of compassion, of camaraderie, of support. People that just gave, and, and when I mean they gave, if they couldn't get there themselves to help out 
physically, and plenty of people did. They gave of themselves their labour, their time, uh, their energy, but others donated goods and supplies and materials. Uh, and whether that was big business, small business, mum and dad, uh, kids at home, it didn't matter. People gave, and they gave things that they saw mattered, whether it was clothing, whether it was kids' toys, it, it didn't matter. And then, of course, you saw this remarkable generosity with donations, uh, donations that went to charity organisations and, and, and the relief effort and the, and the recovery effort, which was just, was, was just extraordinary. And it does restore your faith in humanity yeah. that when you're having a bad day, people will unite together. And they did. They did in their numbers. And so many little stories. I, I visited so many evacuation centres, relief centres, people's homes, people's business, and just sifting through rubble and all those sorts of things. But there, there were so many, so many local stories. I, I remember this one time I was down the south coast with my colleague and the premier, and we, and we went to visit. We, we came across this family that had been coming together for Christmas and New Year for decades. And this family had to be evacuated because they were in a highly risk area. They, they, they were not defendable at the time. And they, they located further south to a little community called Tomokan, which was a safer place to be. And they were sitting there as a group of families that all, that all, that all come together. And, and they realised very late at night that they weren't going to get back home. They weren't going to get back to, their, to the place they were staying. And they shared this story that a lady and a man came up to them. This, this one woman was holding her, her little children. And this woman and a man came up and said, look, young, look, young lady, um, if you need a hand, uh, we've got a spare. We've got some spare rooms in our home. You're more than happy to come back and spend the night in comfort and reassess how things are going tomorrow. And this lady was quite taken back by the offer, and she had to say, "Look, you're so kind, but I just need to let you know that my family's pretty big." And mm -hmm. she said, "We're we're actually five small families uh, as one big family. <laughs> uh, there's 27 of us. We range in age from four years to 80 years." When we evacuated, we took our two rabbits and our four dogs. So if, if you're going to take me, I need to take all of them. Mm. And this couple just turned around and said, we can do that. I mean, I'm still getting emotional thinking about it now. Yeah. They yeah, said, they said we up, can do it? that. Yeah. And this lady just said, you're kidding. So so they were telling us this story, all of them. They were sharing their experience. And, and so the remarkable generosity to complete strangers to give over their effectively their entire house and their yard to accommodate these animals uh, they all spent the night, and they said to they said to us while we were talking to them, they said they'll they'll never forget that generosity, and that willingness to accept all of them, twenty odd of them, and all their animals and everything. They said not only did we have, you know, what ultimately turned out to be a lovely night in really horrific circumstances, they'll never forget that generosity. But for however these this couple did it, the next morning they cooked up one of the best breakfasts that family can ever remember <laughs> yeah. before they were able to leave and, and head back to see what was left of their homes. Yeah. So things like that was remarkable. And I remember when, when the fire settled down and a lot of the recovery kicked in, there was just, I remember calling in on my way down south one day to the Braidwood showground where Blaze Aid was set up, where all these volunteers come together. Often it's nomads traveling around in their caravans around the country that pull up and lend a hand. But I called into the Blaze Aid camp while I was driving through one one afternoon and um, got chatting to the coordinator there and they had all the teams out in the field. And while we were there, this car turned up and there was this handful of young people. I reckon they'd be in their late teens, early 20s. Hmm. And they wandered in and this fella said, can I help you? And they said, yeah, um, we're just wondering how we can help. And he said, what do you mean? And they said, well, um, we, we come from Sydney and we've got these friends over here that come from Canberra. Um, and we can see all the work that's going on. We've never done a fence in our life, but we saw there was a message out there that if you wanted to help farmers and landholders, Blaze Aid would really welcome support. Mm. So we're here to learn, and we're giving up our weekend, and, and we're going to come back for the next few weekends if you'll allow us, because we want to lend a hand to, uh, to, to, to helping those that, that need it. So I, 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 could, I could bore you all day with stories <laughs> like that, no matter where I travelled. So it was just that, it was that generosity and that unconditional want to make a difference even if people thought they didn't have any capacity to do so every little bit mattered and when you spoke to people that were picking up the pieces and literally pieces because often there was nothing left of their home or their livelihood or their business just knowing that that sort of 
that sort of care, that compassion, that love, that that generosity was there. It lifted them. And I think that humanity, that 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 Aussie spirit of mateship and coming together when the chips are down, that's what really inspired me and, yeah. and kept me going. That workforce that was just relentless every day, day after day. I was part of a massive team. Yes, as leaders and, and as leaders of something so significant, uh, we carry we carry seriously the burden of command and and I was broken emotionally unashamedly uh, quite publicly on several occasions, particularly mm. when we lost our firefighters and mm. I was involved with their families and their loved ones and attending funerals and doing eulogies and all those sorts of things. It cut, it cut very deeply uh, and, and, and it was tragic. It was tragic in every sense of the word and, and we mourn their loss to this day and, and may we never ever forget the sacrifices made mm. um, and that generosity that came to the fore when people needed it most. It's still there. And we're all experiencing COVID now in a different way. Yeah. Um, uh, we're all troubled and we're all we're all living through uncertain and difficult times. But it's that spirit of togetherness, that openness about what's going on, sharing information that will help get us all through. Yeah, I'd love to come to that actually later in the interview, talking about how we can sort of encourage similar responses to different disasters like the New South Wales floods and COVID. But just want to home in on leadership because a lot was written about mm-hmm. You and your leadership qualities, you know, the public found immensely refreshing, especially when, when compared to that of politicians. But it's been described as empathetic, reassuring, calming, consultative, uh, conducive to instilling public trust and great communication. So it's not a bad rap sheet for your leadership styles. I'm curious as to what's influenced your leadership ethos in the field and also in leading major organisations. I think, I think what's influenced me the most is like everybody, it's lived experiences. It's what we experience ourselves uh, when we're surrounded by people that we value and admire. And we also, we also uh, learn and reflect uh, on traits and behaviours uh, by those that we're connected with or that we observe that we don't admire, that we don't appreciate, that we don't value. Uh, and for me, I think, I think ultimately I, I, I sit around half a dozen key points when it comes to leadership. Um, um, and, and I would say this by saying I think it's leadership generally. The more of a leadership culture we can build in ourselves and in our teams and our organisations, the stronger we are, particularly when the crisis comes. So if you've got weaknesses, if you've got challenges in your leadership uh, and in your organisation, they, they will be very much magnified or amplified when you hit that crisis time. So the more you invest in leadership and in culture ahead of the big crisis, Uh, I think the stronger and more capable you will be. And for me, ultimately, leadership is simply about building trust and confidence in people uh, internally uh, and externally to your customers and and your partners. And the core to building that trust and confidence, particularly in, in times of crisis or in times of significant uncertainty, like we experienced with the fires and the floods and and now with COVID. But to court, the core to building trust and confidence for me starts with authenticity. Um, and that starts with, with someone like me who might be the, the lead of the organisation. But starting with yourself, it's responsible for all of us. Be very real to yourself. Understand your limitations. Understand your strengths. And surround yourself with good quality people that make up the difference where you know you're lacking. I think also when it comes to authenticity is being real about the situation or the circumstance. There's an old crude phrase, Nicholas, that I like to use, and pardon me for the, for the, for the analogy, but if you're dealing with a dog poop sandwich, mm. don't cover it in hundreds and thousands and try and tell people it's fairy bread. They'll work it out pretty quickly, you know? Like, so, so when you're dealing with a disaster or a crisis, the key is not to exaggerate the situation and, over, and overstate it, but equally as importantly, don't understate it or don't dismiss the potential gravity of the situation. If you can be as authentic as possible personally, and then of course with the circumstances or the situation you're dealing, I think that resonates with people. And that authenticity uh, centers too when it comes to communications around not using fancy words, don't use jargon, don't don't get tried to be too sophisticated or polished, be authentic uh, with what you're trying to describe. Second to that would be humility and empathy. Remember as leaders, uh, and put the higher up you go, it's actually not about you. It's actually about everybody else. Take what you do very seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously and don't let ego get in the way. Um, when it comes to empathy and understanding everybody else, the more you can legitimately understand, connect with, relate to, appreciate um, 
seek to understand as much as possible what people's perceptions are, what people's what people's drivers are, what people's circumstances are. The more you can connect and relate and understand your own team, your, your, your team, your subordinates, your, your peers, your supervisors, but of course your community or your customer, the more you can understand and connect with people and keep it people-focused, I think the stronger you will be. I think mutual respect is the third one. And growing up as a kid, my sisters and I, what was drilled into us as a phrase over and over again that I remember as a little one, manners cost you nothing, but the lack of them can cost you everything. And I think as we translate into leadership roles and into adulthood, we've just got to remember that manners quote. And mutual respect really comes down to genuinely valuing and involving and inviting divergent views, divergent opinions, divergent perspectives, uh, people with different backgrounds, people with different uh, lenses or perspectives that they're looking and understanding the situation. And if we maintain civility, if we maintain basic courtesy, we can have really good, beneficial, robust discussions and arguments. And we learn the art of compromise. And the pleases, the excuse me's, the thank yous, the listening, it all matters when it comes to mutual respect. Manners cost you nothing. The lack of them can cost you everything. If you're not getting that buy-in, if you're not letting people contribute, you could be missing out on the key part of the strategy that you need to make a difference in the situation. The other thing I would say is around the, the need to make decisions and take actions, particularly in times of crisis where you don't have the luxury of time for, for, for procrastination or reflection or, or further research. You've got to make the best decisions you can with the best available uh, information, insights, circumstances and knowledge concerning the situation. And you've got to put trust uh, in what you've built and invested in over the years to leverage that that capital. Um, it's also about it's also about taking action, particularly within appropriate or unwelcome behaviour um, um, and attitudes in the workplace. And 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 I like to use the flat tire analogy in that regard. So if things aren't going right, or someone's not doing the right thing, or someone's not being a team player, then you've got to deal with it. And and sometimes that that dealing with it can be slight. It, it just might need a, 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 a it might need a soft touch. It might need a small intervention, a bit like a flat tire. Sometimes all you need to do is reinflate the tire, and it's okay, and yeah. away you go. But sometimes we might we might accept that the intervention's a little bit more intrusive, so that flat tire might have a hole in it. So we've got to plug the hole first. Then we can reinflate the tire and away it goes. But we've also got to make the decision at times as well that sometimes the tire is stuffed and you can't repair it and you've yeah. got to get rid of it and change it for a new one. Once you do that, you can reinflate the tire and away you go. Why do I use the flat tire? It's one thing if it's a unicycle, but if that flat tire is the front wheel on the bus that's carrying your strategy, your team, your organization yeah. or your operation, then the reality is no one's going anywhere until you deal with that flat tire. So don't underestimate the criticality of making decisions and taking action. Mm. I think the fifth one that I would talk about would be communicating um, in leadership and communications needs to be plain English. Uh, it needs to be authentic. And for me, every, every time we were doing those press conferences on a daily basis, if not, you know, multiple times daily, I had two broad audiences always in my mind, the men and women on the front line and those behind the scenes and their families that were all part of the, fire and emergency response effort and then the other audience was always those that were impacted affected threatened in the community uh, losing property um, uh, being susceptible to the next outbreak or whatever but no matter what the audience was i followed probably five five key elements number one what's the latest update what do we know and what don't we know and therefore what do we expect to be happening over the next over the next period you then back that up with, based on that information, this is what we're doing and these are the reasons why we're doing it. Hmm. Then we also explain this is what we're not doing or we can't do and these are the reasons why we can't do that or won't be doing that. And then finally, what do we actually want everyone else to do? What do we want others to do to be part of the effort to help us through these really difficult times? And then the final thing I would finish on in terms of a key leadership trait would be leaders need to care. Uh, it's a simple word that's not used a lot, but C-A-R-E, care. To me, it comes down to things like presence. In the difficult times, in the dark times, leaders need to be present. 
They need to be standing up and backing in their people. They need to be supporting their people. And they need to be backing in those that are making uh, good faith decisions, particularly when those decisions might not pan out the way we want. But it's also about being vulnerable. It's also about being connected. And if you genuinely care about your role, about your organisation, importantly about your people and those they're trying to serve and protect, then mm. that'll come through in your authenticity. It'll come through in your communications. It'll come through uh, in, in, in the strategies and the decisions that are being made and the explanations behind them. So for me, that would be uh, over, over the decades uh, what, I've, what I've reflected on, what I've learnt and what I try to aspire to when it comes to my own leadership and the thoughts that I have in sharing them with others if they're asking questions about what do I think is important in leadership. Wonderful reflections. Thank you. In April 2020, you were appointed to lead Resilience New South Wales, a new peak disaster management and recovery agency encompassing New South Wales' response to all disaster and emergency events. One of the most extraordinary and challenging aspects of the disasters we've had in the past few years has been the compound nature of these disasters, with some communities affected by prolonged drought, then severe fires, followed by storms and flooding, and the devastating social, economic and health dimensions of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as mouse plagues in New South Wales. Absolutely. So from your perspective in this new role, how are communities faring in the wake of these seemingly endless and concurrent disasters, and how has it changed the way disaster management agencies go about their work within communities? Look, I think communities are doing remarkably well, Nicholas. Mm. Um, but a little funny story here, um, which will go to a serious end. When I first accepted this role, um, we were talked about it in the middle of the fire season. The fire season was unprecedented. The damage and destruction was unprecedented. And the government knew that the recovery, the rebuilding, the healing uh, would be equally as unprecedented. So mm. they, they decided to establish the new agency. And when it was first talked about and I, and I accepted the role... Um, it was going to be called something like Disaster and Emergency Management New South Wales. Yeah. And as a simple firefighter, that kind of made sense to me. But then they introduced this word resilience. They said, oh, we're going to call it resilience. And I remember saying to the Premier and the Minister and, and others, I said, what the bloody hell's resilience? You know, no one's <laughs> going to understand that word. No one's going to relate to that word. Yeah. Well, I've had to eat humble pie because in the, in the 16 months or so that I've been in the role now, and particularly once they decided to call the agency resilience, it really got me thinking, what do we mean when we say resilience? Um, and I know I've, I've been focused on the word, but my antenna in the last 12 or 15 months, I, I can objectively say, even with a focus on that word, I don't remember ever a time in my life where the word resilience has been used so much, mm. whether it's our family discussions, our social discussions, uh, our business discussions and contemplations, mainstream media reports, government dialogue, it's a word that is everywhere. So it got me really to thinking um, uh, and reading and most importantly, reflecting on the last few decades of my time in fire and emergency management, but also traveling around the state to impacted areas, catching up with families and communities and, and frontline workers and those picking up the pieces to rebuild their lives and listening to them when I say to them, what do you mean when you say resilience? And there's a couple of things that have really come home for me. Number one, I don't buy the simple definition that you find in most dictionaries. And most often it's paraphrased to something like, you know, bouncing back after adversity or disaster, bouncing back to normal. Well, I just call BS on that because firstly, what is normal, especially after you've just been so heavily impacted or dislocated by a major event or a major disaster. Mm. And why would anyone want to go back to normal in inverted commas to be just as susceptible or vulnerable to that disaster or that event or that type of disaster or event again. So, so, so talking to people and listening to people, I've really formed the view that resilience is about lived experiences and learning from those lived experiences so that we can adapt and grow and come out stronger for those experiences. So we're better able to prepare for, anticipate and endure the next event. And when we do again, come out of that stronger and wiser and better again. Mm. And, and resilience, I find, particularly through community and indeed frontline workers, it is about strength. It is about courage. It is about resolve and it is about learning. It's about picking up the pieces and going forward. But Nicholas, what I've also learned um, is that we overlook that resilience is all about living through those experiences and invariably suffering pretty significant psychological and emotional trauma. 
yeah. uh, or, or difficulty. And, and as society, I think there's so much more for us to do when it comes to normalising and destigmatizing this issue around uh, mental health, psychological and emotional well-being, the fact that we've all got thoughts, feelings and emotions, and they get challenged and they get compromised during these really difficult times. And that happens to all of us with one event. But as you say, with droughts, bushfires, storms, floods, mouse plague, um, you know, more storms and floods, uh, COVID, COVID version one, COVID Delta. Biblical, you know, isn't it? Yeah. It, 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 it is extraordinary, you know. So so you've got the, co the consecutive and compounding nature of disasters. Some communities experiencing all three, four or five of those. Other communities and individuals might only experience one. But one is enough, particularly yeah. when it comes to COVID. So, so I think there's a conversation for us to have that as we learn and as we rebuild and repair and heal, we've also got to focus very much on the fact that we are all human and that our feelings, our thoughts and our emotions are challenged. And the more we can look at the person in the mirror uh, and say to ourselves, how are you going? Are you okay? And have an honest answer and conversation back, that's a good starting point. Then yeah. let's do that with our loved ones. Let's do that with our families, mm -hmm. our neighbours, our mates, our broader community, our workplace. We've got to normalise and destigmatize uh, this notion that somehow... Uh, putting your hand up for help, putting your hand up to have a conversation with a mate because you're a bit worried or can't process something, yeah. that there's somehow shame in that. It's absolute rubbish. It's not weakness. Indeed, I think it's absolute strength if we can start looking out for each other. Yeah. So there's no doubt in my mind that our communities are showing that they are remarkably resilient. Don't get me wrong. Uh, they're still deeply traumatised in some areas. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of challenge when they look ahead to work out how on earth do I continue going forward, but it's that it's that community togetherness, it's that it's that it's that extraordinary array of supports and programs. I mean, just for the fires and floods alone, uh, we've got we've got over five billion dollars worth of programs and supports. And whilst most people in the recovery phase talk about rebuilding, repair, and reconstruction, there's also a lot in this space around healing, uh, yep. around support services, and 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 social constructs to help people through the very difficult and uncertain times. Look, let's sincerely hope that as we go forward and get to the other side of, of this current COVID uh, challenge and we open up and we start renewing and we start rebuilding and we start repairing and we start normalising life, uh, that we see those community spirits and that resilience continue to grow, continue to evolve uh, and come out stronger uh, through yeah. the extraordinary adversity that we've all been experiencing. Yeah, it's so important. And, and just contrasting, you know, these insights which you've sort of garnered through Resilience Youth of Wales with your extensive firefighting and leadership experience at the Rural Fire Service, I'm curious as to what you've, you've learned about recovery work that's different to your experiences in a hazard-focused disaster response organisation like the RFS. How have you found the move to an all-hazards agency from a hazard-specific agency? So, so I think that's a really good question. And, and what I would say, Nicholas, is our fire and emergency services fraternity here in New South Wales, tied in with the Commonwealth and our partners interstate and around the world, no matter the disaster or hazard type, we all continue to work together. So even with the COVID response now, you've got, yes, you've got health leading a major health operation, but you've also got all the other related operations, the logistics, the welfare relief, the... Uh, the coordination of major operations, all those sorts of things. The entire uh, fire and emergency service fraternity are all working together in support of that effort. So, so community connectedness, all areas of government, non-government operations, not-for-profit sector, charitable organisations, big business, small business, industry bodies. We've all got to work together and join up together. Oh, I think the biggest. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely, and it's multi-layered and multifaceted. So you can see right now the interplay between government and non-government entities, state government, federal government, um, uh, local government, everybody is working together to ensure we're joined up as much as possible to do the very best we can for the people of New South Wales. I think the biggest distinction always between, um, and I'm going to crudely describe this, but but the response phase of an operation versus the, uh, the response and relief versus the recovery operation is that, there's, there's an understanding in the response or emergency phase of a major event that there's a lot of shell shock. There's a lot of, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. 
Um, there's a lot of focus on the immediacy of the here and now of the unfolding, unfolding events. So people tend to scramble in an organized way together to get the best result. And it really is focused on just saving and protecting as much as they possibly can. But as you transition through the, and, and so people, people are just focused on that one thing, but as you transition out of that into relief and recovery, that's where the real human dimension sets in. When people have got the time to process loss, when people are coming back, and particularly if they've lost loved ones, you know, they've had time to process and realize that their loved one's not coming home. When they, when, when they go back to their property, to their home, to their business, to their livelihood, and find it's been washed away or it's been it's ashes and rubble on the ground, mm. the overwhelming contemplation of where to from here, it's that it's that real when you're in the emergency phase, you're often in that you're in that process together. But in the recovery phase, mm. it's often a very individual, unique experience yeah. and your individual and unique journey. And all it our support- years later our as project, well. It, it sort of can come, absolutely. you know, like at, at different times you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Correct. And, and, and as we've said very publicly, the fires might have gone for weeks and months in different areas, but the recovery will be going for months and years. And, and I can tell you, Nicholas, even after the fires, 18 months after the fires went through some areas- it was only 18 months later that we've had people coming to see us to say they're now ready to have a conversation around what sort of recovery support and assistance might be available. And the reminder is that we all process and deal with things in different ways because our individual family, business and community circumstances are all unique and different as well. Um, and in the recovery process that is spread out over a long time, for some it's over a lifetime, uh, we've got to have the... We've got to have the systems, the programs, the supports, that whole architecture that builds in rigor and robustness uh, to make it sound, to make it solid and make it viable. But it's also got to be flexible and nuanced enough to be able to allow for local need, local priority that will vary from one area to another, that will yeah. vary from one individual to another. So, so yeah, you, 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 I, I think to simply describe it, you've got a much more profound human element to recovery even though you've still got a strong human element in response it, it, it's much more individual and personalized yeah and, and and variable when it comes to the when it comes to the very long journey of recovery and the important thing about recovery most people default to recovery meaning repair rebuilding you know rebuilding roads rebuilding homes rebuilding businesses rebuilding infrastructure uh, all that renewal sort of stuff. The word we don't use enough is healing. So there's a lot of individual and societal community healing that's also part of that very significant recovery um, journey. And for a lot of areas, that recovery healing can be around things like storytelling and reflections. It can be about capturing memories and moments and putting together uh, those libraries of information or those libraries of stories so that people don't forget what happened, that, so that communities that come later don't forget what this community experienced or what this family or business experienced and how they work together to get back up again. So, so it's that real human and social and personal dimension that really features so heavily into recovery, which is why it's so complex and so challenging yeah. and so emotive, because that's the reality. Um, it, it's yeah. very different for everybody, and, and we've got to be there uh, to try and support and accommodate uh, the needs of all that all that individuality and uniqueness. Yeah, I really love that focus on the human and the individual because that is the essence of the recovery work I've been involved in throughout my time with Australian Red Cross as a, as a salaried employee and as a volunteer. And when we talk about emergency management and disaster relief and recovery work, there's a lot of emphasis across the sector on ensuring that recovery from disasters is community-led. How does this work with the creation of new big government agencies such as the Resilience New South Wales, Bushfire Recovery Victoria, and the National Recovery and Resilience Agency federally? Could you talk a bit about what it means for recovery to be community-led authentically and how government agencies can facilitate communities to lead their recoveries from disasters? Uh, my philosophy is, the general philosophy is, the best-led anything um, is that which is locally led. So whether it's planning, response, relief or recovery, our job, agencies like mine and, and bigger agencies, um, our job is to ensure that we've got the right architecture around the place, the policy architecture, the support mechanisms, the, uh, the frameworks that are there 
to support, to facilitate, to enable, to empower uh, that local leadership. And I can say um, um, we, we are channeling and coordinating billions and billions of dollars, uh, but so many of that billions of dollars isn't sitting in my bank account. It's out mm. there with partner organisations. It's out there with partner government agencies. It's out there with, with some of our not-for-profit partners, with our industry partners, with, uh, with individuals and business owners themselves. So, so the idea is... Uh, we want to be able to provide uh, the wherewithal to allow that local leadership and that local-led collaboration to identify priority, to identify need, uh, and deliver on strategies that uh, that that enable them to grow and learn out of out of adversity, uh, to come back stronger and better than they were before the event. And 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 in doing that, uh, we centre very much around. Uh, local government focus areas, and then the subsets of local government into local communities. And in the last 15 months or so, as I've done over over decades, being able to get out into some of these local communities, spend time with some of these local leaders, with some of these local community meetings, and hear firsthand what the needs are, what the priorities are, what the challenges or the limitations are. And that allows us and 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 people in my team, people in in Resilience New South Wales, they're out there in the field. Uh, every day working with people um, either physically present or indeed more virtually in the last in the last 12 months or so but but understanding firsthand and providing that support providing that coordination so and similarly for me working closely with our Commonwealth partners learning the lessons and the insights from our interstate colleagues the ability to share and learn um, is, is just wonderful and I, I see that maturity today even yeah. little things like in decades past we would always talk about building back better after disaster. We call it betterment funding or betterment investment. But I remember in decades past, we'd talk about it, we'd get there and try and do it, and then everyone would talk around in circles, and we didn't replace the old timber bridge with a concrete one because we couldn't agree on who was going to own the asset, who was going to account for the asset, who was going to depreciate. All those sorts of silly things would stand in the way. So we'd build the same bloody timber bridge back and then wonder why it burns down in the next fire or indeed gets flooded. So so this year alone, we're seeing betterment investment, and that's a partnership between the Commonwealth, the state governments, and the and the local governments and local communities. And by way of a practical example, using the bridge analogy, plenty of bridges were damaged or destroyed uh, up along the Great Dividing Range, up particularly up the mid-north coast there. We're replacing those bridges with concrete bridges. And not only are they going to be better to withstand fire, but we're also raising them a little bit because they're often low-lying. Where it's practicable to do so, a lot of those communities... Um, one of the biggest challenges is that they're isolated because of low to moderate floods. So we're building in resilience into betterment investments and betterment infrastructure after these sorts of disasters. And that's coming out loud and clear as local community-led, local council-led priorities to help them go forward. So so it is yeah. absolutely about uh, uh, we, we, provide a, we provide a leadership, coordination, facilitation role to, able, to enable us to support and empower and assist are those locally-led efforts. Yeah, fantastic. And evidence and research tells us that disasters exacerbate existing social inequalities, which leads um, disproportionately affects women, the elderly, First Nations people, and refugees and migrants in, in transition. So in terms of recovery and, and relief work, how can we better enable these groups to participate in relief and recovery activities, uh, ensuring that they've got adequate access to services, et cetera? And, and look, it's a really good example, Nicholas. And, and, and as we speak... Um, um, we are seeing, um, so so yeah, we, you, whether whether it's the bushfire recovery efforts or the flood recovery efforts, you're 100% right uh, in your pricey of the research. In practice, we do find uh, that disaster and tragedy um, highlights uh, or reinforces uh, underlying disadvantage or vulnerability in community. And we've certainly mm-hmm. seen that through the fires. We've certainly seen it through the floods. Uh, and we're seeing it again through through the COVID response. And, and, and particularly with some of the extraordinary implications of the COVID response just recently, as we've learned as we've learned the lessons and captured the lessons through the fires and the and the floods and what have you over the last 18 months to two years, um, focusing very much uh, on joined up approaches involving bodies in the same room on the same calls from from agencies like Multicultural New South Wales, Aboriginal Affairs and related groups, connecting in with local community leaders. Uh, leaders of faith, leaders of um, uh, of local business, le- leaders of local um, uh, programs, connecting with them and related bodies, 
understanding what the needs and priorities were and then tailoring and nuancing everything from products and materials uh, through to communications message and language, communication mediums, um, being able to, to tailor and nuance strategy, support and assistance is absolutely critical. And that's been, that's been central to the, to the current um, uh, and ongoing relief efforts uh, that are being applied right across COVID. And, and um, many tens of millions of dollars have been dedicated uh, into supporting local existing community groups to enable them uh, to further expand their work <clears throat> and maintain an increased demand uh, for the need for relief because of disasters that overlay already very challenged areas and very challenged communities. So yeah. acting in a joined up way, not just with government departments, but with the non-government partners, partners um, uh, industry bodies, uh, groups that represent uh, different different community profiles and different di different different community demographics, engaging firsthand with them uh, makes it makes a makes a significant and discernible difference. Yeah, and just going to the end of the interview, last two questions, but. What are some of the biggest policy changes at the federal and state level do you think that are needed to further improve emergency management in uh, in Australia and New South Wales as well? Look, I think that that's a, I think that's an ongoing and evolving area, uh, Nicholas. Mm. And there's a lot of work already going on in that regard. Um, the creation of organisations like Resilience New South Wales, the equivalent in Victoria and Queensland, and of course the Commonwealth establishing. Um, Recovery and Resilience Australia only in July of this year. Mm. Uh, those bodies are already uh, working together. We've got national structures in place where we're looking at going forward. In New South Wales, we're working with government. Uh, we're looking at putting together the first uh, state resilience strategy uh, where we're looking to identify and coordinate and pull together uh, other big policy instruments uh, that, that are led by, by the emergency management um, uh, sector of the state, but also the broader uh, state policy instruments like like state infrastructure strategies, uh, state climate strategies, uh, energy strategies, all those sorts of things that are really key uh, to how do we how do we how do we understand and capture uh, at a community level, at a local level, uh, what 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 we're vulnerable and susceptible to, and therefore uh, going forward, what are the strategies, programs, and investments, everything from low cost, no cost right through to quite significant. How do we identify uh, what the what the prioritised array of things that we can do over the short, medium and longer term, you know, the next 12 months, the next five years, the next 10 to 20 years, what are the things that we can do that builds resilience, that, that lifts resilience of communities uh, in local areas so that we can provide uh, the confidence uh, to people to live, work and invest mm. uh, in their community and indeed in this great state. So that that area of work uh, will yeah. continue to evolve as it has for decades uh, before us, uh, but particularly in light of uh, the number of significant events and disasters and the and the consecutive and compounding nature yeah. of those events and disasters. There's a genuine uh, willingness and want to learn and uh, to capture learnings uh, and evolve that evolve that knowledge capture uh, into ongoing strategy and policy uh, change and reform. Yeah, and that research is so important, particularly when you think about the IPCC's recent warnings about the worsening outlook for natural disaster events throughout the 21st century as a result of climate change, but also the Australian Business Roundtable for Disaster Resilience and Safer Communities recent report that the annual cost of disasters in Australia will reach $73 billion by 2060. So taking that as a jumping off point to look forward, we're coming into bushfire season now in Australia. And emergency services personnel are extremely fatigued after years of constant emergency responses to fires, floods, pandemic and drought. What's the outlook for the months ahead in terms of weather? And how do you think organisations should be looking after their people so that they can be ready to respond to help the community? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, think, I think we've all got an individual and collective responsibility to look after ourselves and look after each other. I'm really pleased to see um, the fire and emergency services uh, organisations and related partners are investing significantly uh, in increasing uh, programs and resources, uh, onboarding psychologists and other programs to help and focus on uh, the emotional and psychological well-being uh, of their people while they continue to grow and invest and build 
the infrastructure and the equipment and the systems uh, that support them. I think as a society, uh, we've also got to focus on that. So while our teams are tired and fatigued, so too is the community more broadly. Yeah. And ultimately, at the end of the day, our teams and our, and, our, and our emergency services personnel come from those communities. I think, I think the good thing is uh, that they will be ready, they will be able, they will be capable, um, um, and they've, and like every year that evolves, they've never been better resourced, and they've never been, they've never been better supported than they are right now, and rightly so. And there's more coming and more to do. But as the season immediately ahead goes, um, thank goodness we're not seeing any significant signals uh, like we did coming into the 2019-20 fire season, for example. Uh, if anything, this year. We're once again seeing the Bureau tip towards um, an increasing uh, La Nina event, uh, which typically for southeastern Australia and New South Wales means above normal prospects uh, for moisture. Uh, we're starting to into the storm season already, and just in the last 24 hours, uh, the last couple of weeks indeed, we've seen some pretty significant storm-related events impacting uh, rural communities of New South Wales, uh, Central West and up in the Northern Tablelands only last night. Uh, and, and again, we've got to be mindful uh, that with good rains over the last couple of years, we've got above normal fire potential west of the Great Dividing Range, particularly uh, with grassland and cropping conditions. Uh, the only good thing in this, we're probably not going to see a drought this season, uh, yeah. but we're going to go into what would, would be described probably as a pretty normal disaster season, um, uh, whatever normal is. Mm -hmm. uh, but the re reality is, I think, I think the challenges of the last 18 months, droughts, fires, floods, mouse plagues, cyber activity, um, you know, um, critical infrastructure dependency, all those sorts of things. And of course, COVID, uh, it's reminded us all that we are vulnerable and susceptible to impact, that we are vulnerable and susceptible to emergency and disaster. And whilst traditionally disasters happen somewhere to somebody, the rest of us move on with our life. I think the big leveler with COVID has just reminded us all that it doesn't matter who we are, where we are, or what we are, we've got to do our part uh, to mentally and physically prepare for the potential that we could be impacted and affected by a disastrous offending in the future. We are as prepared mm. as we're going to be. We've never been better prepared than we are today, but the reality is we're tired, we're fatigued, and we're all suffering the effects of an extraordinarily long 18 months to two years yeah. of compounding and successive disasters, and we've got to keep that front and centre. Mm. It's a wonderful way to, to summarise and conclude the interview. So thank you so much, Commissioner Fitzsimmons, for your time today, but also for all your extraordinary work in emergency services across many decades and for yeah all the work you're doing now at Resilience New South Wales. We could have talked for many more hours, I'm sure, about all this stuff, but um, yeah, have a wonderful afternoon and thank you very much. Thanks, Nicholas. Really appreciate it. Catch up again soon.